Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, God's Providence, and we begin applications, four applications, beginning today with fear not. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Samuel 15 records one of those moments that became pivotal in the history of the kingdom of Israel. Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, had been anointed as Israel's first king, and one of his tasks was to completely defeat the Amalekites who had formed a considerable threat to the national life of Israel. And Saul accomplished that, demonstrating that he was able to do that which Israel had hoped for in a king. But there was a problem. God had commanded that as a sign of faith, Saul should devote all the spoils of war to utter destruction. Israel was to gain no benefit from this. This was to be devoted to the Lord. But rather than obeying the word of the Lord, Saul spared Agag, he was the king of the Amalekites, as well as the best of the livestock, that is, the best of the wealth of that civilization. He only destroyed worthless things. He kept expensive things. It was disobedience. And eventually, the prophet Samuel showed up and roundly denounced the king's blatant act of rebellion against God. Indeed, Samuel announced that God was so angered by King Saul's disobedience that he was going to remove Saul from being king. You know, as I've said, this was a pivotal moment in which the wheel of history turned. And Saul would be rejected and David would become Israel's great king. But what interests me in this account today is the reason for Saul's disobedience. Listen to Saul's own explanation of his behavior. I'm reading 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And that was it. Saul was afraid that if he obeyed God and denied the people the booty of war, which they felt was their due, well, he was afraid they might depose him as king or perhaps even worse. Perhaps they would turn on him and kill him. And so, driven by his fear of people, he reacts in disobedience to God. You know, fear is a remarkable thing, for it leads people to disobedience and faithlessness. Let me take you to an earlier time in Israel's history, and it's recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. Israel has, through the strong hand of God, been delivered from Egyptian slavery. And then, for the next two years, they live in the Sinai Desert, where they learn the Ten Commandments and the rules that God wants to show them regarding worship, holiness, and righteous commands. And then in short order, they're brought to a place called Kadesh Barnea. You know, Kadesh Barnea was on the edge of the promised land, and Moses then calls out 12 spies to spy out the land. And they come back and report that the land indeed is full of milk and honey. It's, it's everything that God has promised that it would be. In Numbers 13, 27 to 28, it records some of the things those 10 spies reported back. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Who were those fearful descendants of Anak? Now, here's a curious thing. Later on in verse 33, that matter is explained. It says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Okay, so the sons of Anak, or the descendants of Anak, were thought by the spies to come from the Nephilim. So 
Who are these Nephilim? Well, the only other place the Nephilim are mentioned is in Genesis 6, verse 4. See, before the universal flood, when the violence on earth was so great that God sent a flood, Genesis tells us that the Nephilim were a powerful race of warriors. They were the mighty men of old. In short, they were men so powerful that in an already violent and cruel world, no one could stand against the Nephilim. They were unstoppable. Now, we know from Genesis that all the Nephilim were killed in the flood. There were no descendants at all. But the spies who come back from Canaan were so afraid of the warriors in the Promised Land, they assumed that these people must be the descendants of the Nephilim. Of course, it wasn't true, but fear drove them to exaggerate the dangers. Numbers 14 tells us that when the people of Israel heard this word from the spies, they didn't respond by saying, hey, you guys, that just doesn't make any sense at all. You're allowing your fears to rule you. Listen, the Egyptians were strong and God fought for us then. All we have to do is trust in God, but but that's not what happened. Numbers 14 verse 1 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept all night. And, And by the way, I think that's a very gracious way of putting it. I have no doubt that people were shrieking with fear. And then after fear really took hold of them, they add to their sins by savagely blaming God for a crisis that in truth didn't even exist. Listen to Numbers 14 verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? You know, as in the case of King Saul, this moment of fear became a pivotal moment. God then sets his face against that community and he condemns them to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until all of them die there. And their little ones, the ones they thought would fall by the sword, well, those little ones grew up. And under the leadership of Joshua, they took the promised land for the Lord their God. Fear is a strange thing. Paralyzes people. It blinds people's eyes. It kills faith. It robs people of joy. It keeps us from the things that matter most. And there are numerous occasions in our Bible in which we're given the words, do not fear. After their father Jacob died, Joseph's brothers got together and said, you know, what if Joseph hasn't really forgiven us? but's only waiting to get even for us. He kept his powder dry until after our father died. And in response, Joseph says, do not fear, am I in the place of God? Translation, rather than be afraid of God, you're afraid of me. I mean, how can that be? In Joshua chapter 10, when the kings of the Amorites made a concerted effort to, to counterattack the advances made by Joshua, the Lord speaks to Joshua and he says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And in Revelation 2, verse 10, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. God repeats it. It's essential to our faith. But how many of us know that fear often motivates our behavior? I mean, think how often we allow our fears to dominate us. I know people who are afraid of cancer. I know people who are afraid of giving generously lest they impoverish themselves. I know of people who feel called to some kind of full-time Christian work, and then they draw back because, you know, they hear a bad report, or because they hear it might be hard, or because they fear, well, if I go, I might not be able to make it financially. You know, as realistic or as unrealistic as some of these fears might be, One of the fears that most dominates many people is the fear of people. You know, when we were in high school, 
We were afraid of what people who seemed cool might say about us. And when we get older, we fear slander. We may fear standing up to a bully. I've known many a pastor who's afraid of standing up to a power player in church who always has his way. I understand that one of the great fears that many people have is simply the fear of public speaking. I mean, what will others think when they see me? And by the way, on that note, you know, when I started preaching, I remember I used to have dreams. I think they were expressing the worst of my fears. You know, I would dream that I would be standing behind a pulpit, and then I realized that I had forgotten to put my pants on, and I was terrified to move from behind my pulpit. Now, I I don't know. I mean, those of you who are listening today, maybe you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you can write me, and you can diagnose what's wrong with me. You know, it should be interesting to hear what you have to say, but I had those fears that I dealt with all of the time. But all of that put aside, fears can so paralyze us, they prevent us from trusting God, and they can lead us into sin. I mean, Jesus said that when we fear people, we can't please God. And today, since we've been discussing the doctrine of God's providence, what help is there in a healthy understanding of providence that helps us allay our fears? I mean, at the outset, we've got to say that a belief in providence means that God arranges all things, and the God who arranges all things is doing it for the good of those who love him. So immediately we should see already that we have in the doctrine the beginning of the allaying of our fears. Remember, we have said that God moment by moment sustains all things, that nothing can or will occur that is not for his glory and for the long-term good of his children. I mean, what if you and I become so convinced of that that we actually believed it? Would it change our inner psychology? Would it change the way in which we approached those things that we fear the most? We'll have so much more to say about that. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to provide Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible to break down any barriers from spending time in God's Word. So check out all the Bible resources available online, video, print, radio, podcast, and CD. And it's our prayer that anybody who tunes in finds encouragement in their spiritual journey. We want to guide you back to your Bibles. All of this is made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. If you would like to make a financial contribution to this ministry, or even consider blessing us with a reoccurring monthly gift to help propel the Word of God across Canada and beyond, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebiblecanada.ca. And thanks so much for your support. As I've said this week, I'm not so much discussing the doctrine of providence itself, but but its application. And I wish to apply the allaying of fears to a contemporary situation. You know, as you know, all over the world today, we're witnessing a massive people movement, perhaps as we've never seen in the history of the world. This is seen in the crush of worldwide refugees, but this is also seen and felt in North America as the racial mix from a predominantly European culture is shifting very quickly. And some are deeply afraid. Yeah, some of the fear stems from a very basic and ugly impulse, and that's called racism. 
It's the hatred of people who do not share either one's skin color or one's racial background. But there is another fear. It's the fear of changing cultural values. It's the worry that any country can only absorb a certain amount of immigrants and slowly acculturate them. You know, when the mass of immigrants is higher than can be absorbed, then the basic fabric of that culture simply breaks and either chaos or a complete cultural shift ensues. You know, that shift might be away from the kind of Western liberal democracy and could launch us into the kind of violence that has become so predominant all around the world. Now, what I have to say does not reflect my political beliefs about these things. I mean, I leave the level of immigration to other circles. I, I'm not interested in discussing what the government should or shouldn't do in the present situation. I'm not addressing what our policy should be. I am, however, speaking about the providence of God and his meticulous sovereignty around all things. I'm also speaking to the issue of fear and seeking to replace fear with a confidence that God does all things for his glory and the long-term good of those who love him. So where do we begin by addressing the fears of so many Christians? I want to begin by affirming God's providence regarding where it is that people live. While addressing the philosophers in the Areopagus in Athens, Paul makes a remarkable statement. I'm reading Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So let's stop there. God has determined both the boundaries of the nations as well as the periods of time in which they live within those boundaries. Now, for the believer, it is helpful for us to ask the question of where the idea of separate nations come from. And according to the book of Genesis, the division of the human race came immediately after the Tower of Babel. So we remember that before the flood, the earth had become intolerably evil and God destroyed that ancient world. And then, shortly after the flood, as human civilization flourishes again, human ingenuity leaps forward dramatically and so does human evil. God then separates out the human race, creating various and competing cultures. And this prevents the ultimate human super society from developing. Now back to Paul and the philosophers of Athens. Paul says that God not only developed various civilizations to keep ultimate evil at bay, but that he governs the extent of a civilization or how great a civilization becomes. He also governs its duration. That is his doing. And so, bringing this to our world, it is possible, although we can't know it, but it is possible that Western liberal democracies are now so being stretched that the present form of things are being either brought to an end or being dramatically changed. And according to Scripture, it's God in his providence who arranges these things. Paul's not done. In Acts 17, verse 26, he tells us that God determines the allotted periods and boundaries of the human race. And then in verse 27, he adds a fascinating thought. Paul says that he does so in order that they might seek God. In short, God's dealings with the nations are so arranged that in due time, nations, civilizations, people groups are brought to a place in which they might seek God. Now, I'm not a missiologist, so let's make that clear. But I think that one would have to be blind not to notice that we are living in the day of historic and seismic shifts as the center of the Christian world has moved from the West to either the global South or in certain places in the Asian world. 
Furthermore, it seems clear to me that the gospel is growing in places where it has never grown this way before. And furthermore, it also seems clear to me that the Western world, once considered to belong to something called Christendom, is so no longer. Europe is now the only continent in the world where the Christian faith is not growing. Indeed, it's shrinking. So there can be no doubt that current Western values, however one defines these things, have been corrosive to the Christian faith. And many of us who live here have prayed that the Lord would send a revival. Well, all of that being said, we are now at a place where the birth rate among secular Western democracies is in full decline. Marriage is delayed. Living together is encouraged. Various sexual expressions are celebrated. Abortions are commonplace and deep and profound surrender to Christ as Lord, while it's still here in North America, is heart under siege. And many of us are praying that God will intervene. And in the meantime, many parts of the world are in upheaval, bringing people of vastly different cultures and religions to our door. And here, let me get personal. You know, for years, I pastored in a church in which my sermons were translated into 12 different languages, and I saw a weekly conversion of people Chinese, Russian, Iranian, Middle Eastern, many different backgrounds. And so my word is for people who are believers and who think that the advancement of the gospel is the primary value. No, not the sustaining of our culture, but the advancement of the gospel. If God, as we've seen, providentially reigns over all things and is sustaining or ordaining this vast cultural shift, well, my interest lies in what God is doing. If it is true that God determines the borders and the duration of a culture for the purpose of causing men and women to seek him, is this such a time? And if so, I'm praying for two things. First, I'm praying that God would awaken the church in the West from its lethargy and its fears and seize this opportunity to form friendships with immigrants and to use this as an opportunity to share the gospel. And furthermore, since it is true that there are many cultures where conversion results in being alienated from family, I pray that God would create an atmosphere of family so profound in local churches that new immigrants who are converts would find themselves enfolded into a new family of faith that lives life with them. And secondly, I'm praying for the many immigrants who come. I pray that whereas in their country of origin there would have been no gospel witness, that God might open their hearts to hear a gospel witness in this land. But in praying for these things, I'm confident that these grand global events are ordained and sustained by God so that men and women would seek him, says scripture. And I'm praying that God's people would not be paralyzed by fear, but would respond with an understanding that God's providence rules over all things. I pray that God's people would get a vision that's inspired by Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In short, it's my view that a healthy doctrine of providence in God will affect how we see world events. Of course, that doesn't mean that Christians will never go through hard times. You know, it seems to me that every advance of the gospel has been accompanied by suffering. But if you're with me in this, 
that God rules and that these days are as they are, for God has arranged them in exactly this way, and that you will agree with me that God does all things for his glory and for the long-term good of his people and his church, then does this not remove our fears and replace it with a genuine sense of hope and a willingness to see God at work? See, I happen to think that Christian people, when, when fully overwhelmed with the gospel, view things from a different perspective than everyone else does. Of course, the crisis of massive cultural shifts are but one example of where we might apply the doctrine of providence, replacing fear with spiritual insight and gaining a heart for the peoples of the world. There are numerous other examples where we place the doctrine of providence against fears. We do when we face personal opportunities in life. We do when we face personal crises in life. Rather than being overwhelmed by the darkness of fear, we seek to understand the providence of our God. Our God rules and our God sustains all things. So, how about you? Has the doctrine of God's providence led you to approach life with enthusiasm and confidence? Or have you not yet learned how the truths of scriptures actually make a difference in the way you live your life and in the way you see life? Perhaps you might ask God to help you believe these things when he declares them to be true and to let them change your life. John, I sense that fear can really almost paralyze us from doing the things that we would normally do for God. Yeah. Oh, my. And, and uh, you know, so much of our lives, you know, are driven by fears. And fear, you know, it does, as I have said, in, you know, in this message, it leads people to disobedience and faithlessness uh, because we're panicked in our own heart. And so it's important for us to begin to grasp this concept that this is my father's world, that he is in control, that the things that we fear are not in control, and that once we operate within God's purposes, we gain this deep sense of confidence. It doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer in life, but even if we suffer, we know that God has intended some greater things in our own lives. So let's move forward in courage. Let's be obedient to God. Let's do what God called us to do in this hour and let's see how God acts. Thanks so much, John. And remember, fear not. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Providence, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. If you love reading the weekly blogs from Dr. John and Company, then you won't want to miss out on Back to the Bible Canada's bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. In it, you'll find articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Gaines, Phil Calloway, and other incredible guests, all with excellent, biblically-inspired insight. Not to mention the stunning images and visuals. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, the aim is to provide resources without barrier to help enrich your walk with the Lord. That's why Truth and Life Today magazine is free to all who ask. To subscribe to the Truth and Life magazine and receive the next issue delivered right to your door for free, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash magazine. And thank you 
It is due to the support of generous listeners that Back to the Bible Canada is able to produce and distribute Bible teaching resources like this to all who ask.